Welcome to Faith Foundations with Open the Word with Circle of Friends podcast. I am your host, Gwen McCaslin, for this discipleship series released every Wednesday. Um, And we have been working our way through the Old Testament scriptures, kind of doing a light skim overview type thing. Um, Hopefully, my goal for this, um, in case you have kind of missed that through the past couple weeks or you're just checking in for the first time. My goal is that if you are new to the Bible or maybe you have some gaps in Sunday school education over the years, things like that, um, that this would be a resource that, you know, if you're reading in the book of Exeter, you can pull up this podcast and listen to it and get the historical uh, context as well as an outline and just the general themes and situations, things you're going to see in the book. Um, and so I, my heart for this is to kind of really encourage all of us to be digging deeper into God's word, to be mining it for uh, the things that God has for us. Um, yeah. So let's go ahead and get started. Um, and I'm gonna like bring us right into kind of the who, what, when, where, and why of the books. This is your context. This helps you understand. Um, we actually do not know who wrote the book of Esther. Um, we do know that it is a story of redemption. That is what it is. Um, and it is the story that God has not forsaken his people even when he's not obvious. And so one of the quirks about the book of Esther is that that God is not actually mentioned anywhere from the start to the finish in the book of Esther. But his hand and his um, providence is obvious throughout the entire book, through circumstances that happen, through interventions that God moves his people to do, uh, people he's put in authority and those kinds of things. And we'll get into more of that in a second. But um, where, the where of this book is very unique to a lot of the other books, and it's in Persia. And this would have been in the, um, it wasn't the Medo-Persian Empire. It would have been just past that into the new Persian Empire. And so you, for those of you who are kind of uh, history geeks, this book picks up right at the end of Daniel. And so chronologically, you would flow from Daniel into this book. Daniel spans um, Nebuchadnezzar's reign, his son Darius, and then the transition into the Medo-Persian Empire, um, but ends kind of when that transition um, with the next king. So, okay, so what we got here, this is about 400 BC uh, roundabouts. Um, and the why, the why of this book is to demonstrate that in all circumstances, God is in control. And so even in foreign cultures, with foreign governments, with, um, you know, uh, secular environments, God is in control. Um, and God has a plan that will not be thwarted even by um even by the Hamans of this world. Uh, And I think that's a message for us today as we dive into this book. I think some, you know, we look around and we go, what is going on in the world today? Um, And I think this is a good book for us to be digging into and really looking at the messages that it contains. All right, so let's go ahead and outline the book, and then we'll dive in a little bit. But the this book is one that is read during the Feast of Purim uh, for the Jews even to today. Um, and the Feast of Purim is the Feast of Lots. And so it's one of, it's actually in about February or March is usually when it's uh, celebrated and commemorated. Um, 
and one of the things they will do uh, is it's a celebration, um, <laughs> and they call the book of Esther the Megillah. And I don't know about most of you, but there's an expression like the whole Megillah, and it's this, uh, basically the, the idea is it's the whole big story. Um, and so Esther is kind of known as the big, the Megillah, uh, the whole Megillah. Um, and so it is a big story. That's what Megillah means. Um, and so this book is often read standalone from, from start to finish. And it is, is kind of looked at or crafted um, by a very clever author to be um, a very tied-in story that has a very tight structure to it. Um, and so uh, chapters 1 through 5, you have kind of, if you can kind of look at this book from afar, you can kind of structure it where it's a V. Um, and the point of the V at the bottom is chapter 6, and that is the ironic reversal of the entire book. That's the pivot point. So you've got one thing going on until you get to chapter 6, and then everything shifts, and we have a reversal. And then, um, and basically, the first part of the book is Haman's rise in power. Um, Haman was uh, one of the uh, officers... Um, appointed by the king, opening in the book, and he is the the quintessential bad guy. Um, you know, if you're into Disney movies, he's the Jafar, <laughs> so to speak, of Aladdin's movie. Um, you know, he he is just he's plotting. He has a hatred towards the Jews, and he has a big scheme. And what we see in chapter six is his ultimate humility. And then from the rest of the book on, we see his arch nemesis's what word is that is that a word <laughs> um but we see the one that he hates the most rise to power and that's Mordecai um okay so that's kind of the structure of this book from a from afar is we have um a point at chapter six and then a switch and then the rest of the book is um almost a mirror of the first part of the book in irony in opposite and so I'll kind of walk you guys through that a little bit. It's a fascinating little book that's been very cleverly written. Um, and so chapter 1 and chapters 10 actually mirror each other a bit. And so and so on and so forth all the way down to chapter 6. And so like if you look at the top of the Vs and work your way down, they kind of mirror. Um, and chapter 6 is sandwiched between Esther's two feasts. And so it's just beautifully written. If you look at it from a literary standpoint, um, the book of Esther is truly a masterpiece. Okay, so that said, let's dive in a little bit to the outline of um, at the book of Esther. Um, in a general sense, we have chapter 1 and 2 kind of being linked together. This is the search for a new queen. Um, and basically what we've got going on here is that the king um, has two feasts, and they last for about 187 days. And the whole point of these two feasts is basically to show off his awesomeness. Um, and so part of what he does at the end of the feast is he calls his wife, the queen, out, and he wants her to show herself off. Um, she refuses, and he, to save face, fires her, issues a decree that every man is now the master of his own home, proceeds to hold a beauty contest, and Esther is chosen. Now, the thing I want you to understand is that in this day and age, it wasn't always safe 
to show that you are a Jew. Um, and so what we have is Esther actually conceals her identity as a Jew, um, as, or a Jewess, uh, I guess we could call her. Um, and so she conceals that, enters the beauty pageant, and I don't know that women had a lot of choice back then. If you were beautiful, you were you were almost uh, drafted into the harem. I mean, it was... And, and the sad part is these women joined the harem and they would never be allowed to leave. So um, there was this huge influx of beautiful women that were brought into the harem. Um, and in this day and age and culture in, um, in Persia, beauty was... Uh, it was a regiment. Um, so there were like two years of beauty treatments that these girls would have undergone. Like this was a huge process. And so understand that the timing in chapter one and two is probably pretty extensive from the time the women are brought in to the time that they're actually given a night with the king. And so there's been a lot of movies that have been created around this, um, around the book of Esther that kind of show this off quite a bit. But um, anyway, Esther is chosen, and the king is just, he's crazy about her. He makes her queen. And then in the process of this, we have this absolute uh, crazy moment where Mordecai just happens to overhear a plot to, to kill the king. Um, and so through, you know, just the means that he has, he ends up saving the king. Okay, so we, we see that at the end of chapter 2. Now, here's the thing. You kind of have to take Mordecai saving the king and overhearing that plot, and you have to almost set it aside to pull it back out later um, because nothing kind of happens in result of that right away, um, but it definitely shows up later on in the book. Um, okay, so the next section we have is chapter 3, and that's Haman's plot. Um, and I'm going to come back to this in a moment. Esther's plan is chapters 4 through 6. Um, and I'm going to actually call that Esther and Mordecai's plan um, because they definitely do work together in that. And then chapter 7 is Haman's downfall, and he's actually hung on his own gallows. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. Um, 8 through 10 is Esther saving the Jews. Um, is a very simple way of kind of looking at that. Okay, so key verse for this is Esther 4, verse 14. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Esther 4.14. Um, and this should echo a little bit to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego standing before the king saying, you know what, God will deliver us, but if he doesn't, um, we are still going to walk faithful before the Lord. Because it's got a little bit of that in it too. You know, this idea of um, you've got a choice here. But even if, you know, one thing doesn't happen, there is this other. There's salvation that's going to come from somewhere else. God is going to do something else. Even though it's not said here, it's pretty obvious that um, Mordecai is looking at his, his niece that he's raised, and he's saying, listen, you know, if you remain silent, deliverance will come from somewhere else. But you're going to lose your life in the process. Um, and who knows if God hasn't put in you in this place at this time for this reason. 
Um, and so this is a verse that a lot of times is used to kind of challenge us to look around at where God has placed us and to ask what God wants to do with us um, and to really seek his face and to see what he's got in store for us. Okay, so that's your big overall plan. So let's jump back in um, up here in chapter 3 at Mordecai's refusal, uh, or at uh, Haman's plot, rather. Okay, so what we have at this point um, is Haman is, has, does a really good job of manipulating the king. Um, and quite frankly, the king here is very, very easily manipulated. Um, you know, he's had this... All of these uh, attenders to his feast have gotten him to fire his queen, issue a decree, you know, all to save face. So he's very, um, he's wanting to be very popular. Um, and so he, he's obviously a king that can be manipulated by people very easily, especially when it comes to his own ego. And so you can see in chapter 3 that that's exactly what Haman uses. He uses the king's ego a bit. And basically what he does is he tries to establish that there's this people group that don't worship the king and so on and so forth. Um, but basically, the, the whole thing is that Haman and Mordecai have had a moment. <laughs> um, and the king had ordered that Haman w- should be honored. And so every time he walks through the streets, everybody's supposed to bow to Haman just like they would bow to a king. Um, and so Haman is angry because Mordecai has not done so. He's not bowed. Um, And if you're familiar with Daniel, it carries the same kind of idea that the Jews were in conflict because um, they didn't bow to other gods. They, you know, or kings or, you know, they they, um, preserved the bow for the Lord. And so they were often, like Daniel faced this, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Bendigo did, um, these moments where they were expected to bow and to choose not to was sometimes uh, got them some pretty stiff consequences, uh, like lion's dens and all kinds of things, um, fiery furnaces and so on and so forth. So Mordecai's kind of facing the same thing, except that it's not the king, it's, it's Haman that he refuses to bow to. So this spikes off Haman's anger. I mean, he just rages against this guy. Now, the thing you need to know about Haman goes back actually to um, a passage in second in first Samuel chapter 15 um, and it is the story of Saul's disobedience to the Lord um, the Lord gives very strict instructions that the king Agag um, Agag the king of the Amalekites is to be killed and that every um, all of them are supposed to be killed and you know sometimes when we see this in scripture there's a piece of us in our modern thinking, um, especially Americans, who go, what? God's ordering the murder of people? And we don't understand that uh, the king of Israel, uh, Saul's position and David's position, they were actually uh, used by God to enact his justice, to literally establish his justice. Um, and so literally what you see here is God calling him as like his right hand to execute out justice. So you you have to keep this passage in its historical context. Um, you can't take it out and put it in our mindset today. You can't view it through our mindset with our cultural 
um, opinions and beliefs and that kind of thing. You have to leave it in biblical context. Okay, that said, um, you know, he God is very clear um, that Agag is not to be spared, um, and that everything that he owns is to be is to be just killed, wiped out completely. Okay, um, and then what you see happen in chapter fifteen is that Saul um, and the people make decisions to keep some of the wealth, keep some of the animals, keep you know some of the things, and Saul keeps the king Agag alive. Okay, and then all of a sudden we have Samuel, who is the prophet, um, and a lot of times what you see in these is it's not fortune-telling. This is them speaking what God wants to communicate to people, okay? And so um, you have Samuel being sent by the Lord to Saul, and he's confronted, Um So let's go to verse 13. Samuel comes to Saul, and Saul says to him, Blessed are you of the Lord. I have carried out the command of the Lord. Which is really interesting because Samuel doesn't even get around to confronting him before Saul's proclaiming that he's he's obeyed. Um, And Samuel says, Then what are my ears hearing? What is the bleeding of sheep in my ears and the lowing of oxen? Um, And so we get excuse number one. Um, and then in verse 16, um, Samuel says to Saul, wait, let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And, and then Saul graciously says, speak, you know, as the king, um, you got to love this play here. If honestly, if you just open up this chapter and just imagine that you are a bystander watching this conversation, um, it's just really, you're watching a man squirm with his confrontation is what you're watching. You're watching a man who refuses to own his sin. Okay, so um, wait, let me tell you what the Lord says to me last night. Um, Okay, speak, says Saul. And Samuel says, it's not, um, is it not true that though uh, you were little in your own eyes, you were made the head of the tribes of Israel and the Lord anointed you king over Israel? The Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go and utterly destroy the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are exterminated. Okay, so that's pretty clear. (laughs) Um, Verse 19. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord, but rushed upon the spoil and did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Okay, so right here is mercy. Mercy confrontation right here. He's confronted with truth. Okay, verse 20 is Saul's response. Saul says to Samuel, I did obey the voice of the Lord and went on the mission that the Lord sent me. I brought back Agag, the king of Amalek, and have utterly destroyed all of the Amalekites. Lie number two, and then now we're going to get into the excuse and blaming. 21, but the people took some of the spoil, the sheep and the oxen, the choice of things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. The Lord your God. So, I mean, it's not the Lord our God. So you can see Saul distancing himself from the Lord here just a bit. Um, and we're going to see that more and more. 22, Samuel says, Has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. Um, for rebellion is as the sin of divination, 
um, and insubordination as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. Then Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Now, what I want you to understand here is that he's half admitting. He's not fully admitting. This is not a 100% apology. And so for anybody who's ever wondered, like, what it looks like to fully apologize, this is not it. Um, If you want to know what that looks like, you need to flip over to 2 Samuel um, and look at David's confrontation when he's confronted um, because you're going to see something totally different. And that is actually in 2 Samuel chapter 12 um, because when Dan, when um, sorry, when David is confronted, there is an owning and an accepting and a facing. He, he very much, he owns his sin on multiple occasions. Um, he doesn't argue back. He doesn't make excuses. He throws nobody else under the bus. He owns his stuff. And you can see that in Second Samuel chapter 12. Okay, so, and I did a whole comparison podcast on this. So if you want more, go check that out. But why do you think I went to chapter 15? Well, this is the thing that kind of happens here that we almost miss is that the king of Agag is still alive. Okay, that that the Amalekites have not been all wiped out here. Um, and so what we see actually ending end up happening is that Samuel actually goes and kills the king of King Agag. Um, and so uh, I'm going to read for you verse 32 and Samuel says bring me Agag the king of the Amalekites and Agag comes to him cheerfully and Agag says surely the bitterness of death is past but Samuel says as your sword has made women childless so your mother shall be childless among women and Samuel hewed Agag to pieces before the Lord at Gilgal Um, and so Samuel carries out the justice that Saul Uh, King Saul was supposed to have done. Okay, now why is all of that significant to the book of Esther? Well, Agag, the king of Agag. What do we see when Haman is described? Well, he is not a Jew. He's an Agite. He is a descendant of the king of Agag. He's an heir that was not killed when they were supposed to be utterly destroyed. Um, And so he's a descendant of that. And so you can understand a hatred that has brewed in him through the generations down um, so that he hates the Jews um, on premise. His family was wiped out because of them. And so he's in a strategic place within the... um, uh, within the palace to be able to enact his revenge. Um, and so this is a bit bigger than just his conflict with Mordecai. And I think that's something to understand here is that what we're getting is a connection to another part of scripture where a disobedience led up to this, um, this conflict right here. Um, now the other thing that I want to kind of mention here is that, um, It's not that the characters of this book are being put forth as um, moral examples or just, you know, somebody that you should be following, okay? Because they're, quite frankly, they're in the middle of banquets. There's a lot of drinking. There's a lot of um, sex outside of marriage. There's just a lot of stuff going on that honestly would not have been um, in 
alignment with the covenant that God made with the nation of Israel, okay? So that's not the point of this book, okay? So you're getting a lot of situations that would have had them in moral dilemmas, so to speak, okay? And and so that's not the point of what's going on here. It's The point of this book is how God moves behind the scenes to put people in places and to move the hearts of people to do certain things, okay? Um, and so I want you to understand what the true point of this book is. The other thing that can be um, kept in the back of your mind when you read this book is that a lot of times when we can't physically see God, we can't tell where he's at emotionally, you know, in experience or anything, um, God's still present and he's still marching his plan through time. Um, And so what you need to understand is that even when God's not obvious, he is there and he is at work. That's the biggest lesson to take from the book of Esther. Um, So in any case, this is just... um, when you read this, you almost have to, to read it like you'd watch a movie. You know, with the movie, you're not going to be sitting there objecting to every little thing and then throwing out the movie and ripping and tearing it up because there was one piece of this that you just don't like. You get more into the context when you watch a movie unfold out in front of you. You know, you understand harem culture when you're watching something like that. You understand how it would feel to be in that culture. You're not trying to judge it. the movie based on where you're sitting all the time and so I I think that's part of why I so encourage you to make sure you keep in mind the culture of the book the culture it's context it's cultural context it's emotional context it's um, tangible historic uh, context because um, when you try to judge the word of God harshly based upon our um, lenses, our culture, our the hot buttons of our day, um, you, you're going to miss all the good stuff. You're, you're going to lose the opportunity to connect with God in his book. Um, and so uh, that's my encouragement. Um, okay, so we are, where are we at? We're, we're about at chapter... I think we're about chapter four. Um, And so Haman, this master manipulator in the end of chapter three, manages to manipulate the king to establish a decree. Um, And basically this decree is right on par with Hitler. It is the mass annihilation of the Jews is basically the extermination of an entire people group. Um, So this is exactly what we see um, happen with the Germans in um, uh, with Hitler. So um, basically, I think we're going to leave off right there for today, um, and we can pick up next week. Um, we will pick up, and I'll share a couple more things, maybe about Esther and Mordecai, and then we'll jump into the rest of the book. Um, so thanks for joining, and see you next time. Thanks for listening today. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. We'd love to hear from you, so find us on Facebook and Instagram at Open the Word Podcast or send us an email to openthewordpodcast at gmail.com. 
Is it time for you to plan a day trip with your peeps? Come and stay a while at Shia Market in Berlin. There is something for everyone, no matter what your taste or style may be. Visit the Village Gift Barn for your custom floral arrangements and timeless accessories for your home. Stroll upstairs to Shia's Style Boutique for your perfect outfit. Everything from accessories to shoes. Be inspired at country gatherings with decor from Modern Farmhouse to transitional design. Then meander through the gardens for a large selection of houseplants. And last but not least, order your perfect cup of brew at the Buggy Brew Coffee Company. End your day by gathering to relax in our courtyard. You will leave feeling connected and refreshed. Step back in time with a stay at one of the oldest buildings in historic Berlin, Ohio, the Worthman House. This charming building has a rich history with origins dating back to as early as the mid-1800s. The newly restored two-bedroom, one-bathroom suite has hardwood floors and gorgeous chestnut trim throughout. It is also outfitted with locally made Amish furniture. It can sleep six and offers a beautiful panoramic view of Berlin's Main Street. Its location in the heart of Berlin is an ideal spot for walking to various restaurants and shops. Book your stay at the Worthman House through VRBO.